When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From John Adams to the heads of department, March 13, 1798, will it be advisable to present immediately to Congress the whole of the communications from our minister in France, with the exception of the names of the persons employed by the minister Talleyrand to exhibit and enforce his requisitions for a bribe under an injunction of secrecy as to that particular. Ought the president then to recommend in his message an immediate declaration of war? The already tenuous diplomatic links between the United States and France in the late 1790s would be further rocked when the first dispatches from the three-man commission appointed by President Adams arrived back in Philadelphia in March 1798 and the president had to consider whether the latest affront to the nation's character justified war. However, in order to understand the diplomatic kerfuffle that has come to be known as the XYZ affair, we must rewind the clock a few months and take a look at the France into which the three commissioners entered in late 1797. Before we get to that, I'd like to take a moment to welcome you to this episode of the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Special thanks to Noah Tetzner for providing the intro quote for this episode. Noah is the host of the History of Vikings podcast, where each episode he and his guests examine an aspect of Viking history and peel away the mythical shrouds of legend to help us to better understand these people who would impact both European and North American history. After listening to this episode, take your journey through history further back in time by checking it out. You can find Noah's podcast at the History of Vikings, all one word, com, or by searching on your favorite podcast app. In 1797, revolutionary France seemed to be on an upswing. In the spring, the government of William Pitt the Younger made overtures for a peaceful settlement between Great Britain and France, and diplomats from the two nations met at Lille starting in June. Meanwhile, despite being stretched in terms of numbers of troops available to the Army of Italy, Napoleon Bonaparte had marched his army into Austria proper and made it as far as Leoben by April 7th and had an advance guard 75 miles from Vienna. He made overtures for a truce as the first step towards entering into negotiations and sent his terms to the Austrians. The Habsburg government agreed to the talks, which began at Leoben in April. Meanwhile, the royalist rebellions that had been ongoing in Brittany and the Vendée regions of western France were finally being suppressed, and elections were held between March 21st and April 9th, only the second under the Constitution of Year 3, which had established the Directory government. However, the successes on the foreign front for the Directory would ultimately not find parallels in the domestic front, as the elections, despite poor turnout, were a decisive rebuke of the more centrist Directory and the more radical Republican factions. A majority of those elected were Royalists, and most had no previous political experience. The man elected as the president of the Council of 500 was an unabashed supporter of the restoration of Louis XVIII. This shift in the political makeup of the legislature threatened the ability of the more centrist Thermidorians to dominate the national agenda, but plans were quickly made to retain power. 
First, troops were moved into position around Paris in July. A reshuffling of the executive ministries was carried out in mid-July, and political clubs were ordered closed just over a week later. However, the directory would not stop there. Just after the election results were known, the president of the directory, Jean-Francois Rubel, had proposed annulling the elections, but his colleagues were willing to see if they might be able to work with the new legislature. It quickly became apparent that the legislature sought to take more control over the agenda, and the thoughts of the centrist majority in the directory turned again to how to bring the Council of 500 to heel. On the night of September 3rd leading into September 4th, 1797, or as it was known in the French Republican calendar, the night of 17th leading into 18th Fructidor, the three centrist directors ordered the troops positioned around Paris to seize key points and surround the legislative chambers. They then ordered the arrest of the two other directors, as well as 53 deputies, including the president of the Council of 500, and they had around 30 newspapers shut down. When the citizens of Paris woke up in the morning, they found a proclamation from the three directors plastered up during the night, alleging that a royalist plot had been thwarted. Despite the flagrant circumvention and violation of the law in what would come to be known as the coup of 18 Fructidor, there was no resistance as the election results for 177 legislative seats were annulled and two directors deemed more suitable by the remaining three were installed. Though this coup would solve the immediate problem of allowing the centrists to retain control of the government, in the long term, it undermined the legitimacy of the Constitution of Year 3 and the Directory government and would threaten its long-term continuation. For the American commissioners, it introduced a new wrinkle into their mission as they would be going into an unstable situation seeking to bring stability to Franco-American relations. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. Since his ignominious departure from France, Charles Coatsworth Pinckney and his wife had been cooling their heels at The Hague in the Batavian Republic, a.k.a. the Netherlands. Pinckney benefited from this time as he was able to consult with John Quincy Adams. The two grew close during the few months that they were together in The Hague, and John Quincy wrote back to his father, the president, that he had a, quote, high opinion of Pinckney's character and personal merit. For all his merit, though, Pinckney was a diplomat without much to do, and the lag in communication from the government in Philadelphia would only make things worse. A rumor was put to print in a French newspaper in late April that James Madison had been sent to replace Pinckney and indeed had already arrived in Paris to begin negotiations. When Pinckney learned the news, he wrote to Secretary of State Pickering that, quote, If it is thought the service I was sent to perform can be better executed by Mr. Madison or any other gentleman, I earnestly request that no idea of delicacy with regard to me may prevent the nomination from immediately taking place. Act, in this case, as the honor and interest of our country requires. 
As we know, though, Pinckney was not replaced and would be on hand for the arrival of William Vance Murray in June to replace John Quincy at The Hague, then would finally learn about the appointment of the three-man commission of which he was a part in mid-July. Marshall would be the first of his two colleagues to join Pinckney in The Hague in early September. This was the first meeting of the two Southerners, and they quickly formed a friendship that would last through the remainder of their lives. As they strategized while waiting for Gary's arrival, they received news of the coup of 18 Fructidor and reported back on it to the administration, with Marshall asserting that, quote, if this step has really been taken, it is impossible to foresee its results. I am, however, persuaded that foreign nations will derive no benefit from it. Finally, Pinckney and Marshall decided that they could delay no longer and rode off for Paris on September 18th. A few days later, Gary arrived in The Hague, where he would receive a letter from Pinckney, who, after learning of Gary's arrival in Europe, sent him instructions on, quote, which roads to travel, the proper bribe that must be paid to get through French customs, and the most satisfactory ends on the route. He also advised Gary, quote, to put a French cockade into his hat before he reached Antwerp, or he would meet with continual interruptions and would be liable to have his passport examined. Besides leading modern readers to wonder how many of these lessons were learned by Pinckney through trial and error, it's also a reminder that the three commissioners were traveling into hostile territory. There was hope, though, that they might find a sympathetic ear waiting for them in Paris. For, as part of the shakeup in the executive ministries over the summer, Charles-Francois Delacroix, who had been one of the architects of the more hostile policy towards the U.S., had been replaced as French foreign minister by none other than Charles-Maurice de talleyrand Perigord. That's right, Talleyrand had worked his way into a position of prominence in the directory government, and numerous Americans, including the U.S. Consul General in Paris, Fulwar Skipwith, who had remained behind when Pinckney had been ordered out, felt that Talleyrand, based on his time in the U.S., would be more amiable towards a peaceful settlement of the disputes between the two nations. Indeed, Talleyrand has sent letters to several municipal administrators in late July, ordering them, quote, to give the American envoys all help possible on their journey toward Paris. Marshall and Pinckney would arrive in Paris at the end of September, and Gary would finally join them a few days later on October 4th. On the 8th, the trio paid their formal call on Talleyrand at his official residence and were received, and, as requested by Pinckney, who had been down this road before, provided with cards of hospitality which would allow them to remain in Paris. However, Talleyrand could not formally receive them without instructions from the directory, and he asked for a few days to complete a memorandum he was working on about Franco-American relations for the directory, which would then allow them to decide how to proceed. It would be a week before the commissioners would hear from the foreign minister and the resumption and communication conveyed through Talleyrand's private secretary over tea with Pinckney would be a demand for an explanation to several passages in Adams' speech to the special session of Congress on May 16th, which was discussed in episode 2.5. As I noted at the time, the speech came across as rather belligerent for a president who we know was first and foremost seeking a diplomatic resolution. As we now know from having access to the memorandum that Talleyrand prepared for the directory, the supposed indignation was in fact a tactic meant to ensure, quote, the preventing of a recurrence of such independent assertions of authority by the President of the United States and to facilitate the negotiation to, quote, proceed rapidly towards what is useful without obstacles on either side, without ulterior motives, without mistrust. 
Ultimately, Talleyrand advocated for a restoration of normal relations with the U.S. and, quote, a harmony consistent with the dignity of the Republic, mutual interest, and former treaties. But naturally, the envoys knew none of this. All that they knew is that they were being presented with a demand by an intermediary to explain Adams's critical language before they could move on to address the issues that they had been sent to discuss. The envoys responded by doing, well, nothing. They looked over a copy of the speech and saw nothing worth explaining. But the French foreign ministry insisted that an explanation was necessary before the envoys would be formally received for negotiations to begin. Marshal biographer Jean Edward Smith postulates that Talleyrand's strategy was intended, quote, to exert pressure indirectly and to prepare the envoys for a demand for money, a douceur, or sweetener. As we've already noted, in France under the directory, money talked, and a little grease could get the wheels to moving. This was not an unusual practice, and indeed some of the early American diplomatic agents to France had paid the douceur under the Ancien Regime. Talleyrand, however, was notable in his use of this tool for his personal gain. As noted by historian Alexander de Combe, quote, Gold offered Talleyrand a means of strengthening his position with corrupt colleagues and of maintaining a style of living he had known before the revolution and beyond what his official salary could support. Through huge commissions, tips, and speculation in stocks, he used his position to enrich himself. No minister, historians have said, was ever more successful than Talleyrand at making money out of his duties. Sure enough, on the evening of October 18th, the first pitch was made. A Swiss financier by the name of Jean-Conrad Ottinger met with Pinckney, the only commissioner who could actually speak French. And Ottinger told Pinckney that the commission would be formally received if they would just disavow certain parts of Adams' speech and make a loan to France and, oh, by the way, also pay some extra money to Talleyrand towards, quote, the customary distributions in diplomatic affairs. Just to make sure they understood what was being asked, Pinckney set up a second meeting with Altinger the next day, where he presented Pinckney with a written statement of the demands. Pinckney and Marshall felt that they should immediately end this line of communication. But Gary, concerned that terminating the discussion with Altinger would lead to war, tried to convince his colleagues to not be so rash. While the three envoys were talking, Altinger returned with a friend, Pierre Bellamy. Bellamy was a banker, Talleyrand's personal banker, in fact, and repeated the demands from Talleyrand while stressing that Talleyrand still maintained an affection for the United States from his time spent there and wanted to help. He just needed the money before he'd use, quote, his good offices with the directory to move the negotiations forward. And not just a little money. As Bellamy reportedly stated, quote, il faut de l'argent. Il faut beaucoup de l'argent. For those who don't speak Francais, I'll translate. Quote, it will require money. It will require a great deal of money. Marshall pressed the point with Bellamy. Was he saying that if they didn't agree to Talleyrand's demands, they would not be officially received by the directory? In this game of poker, Bellamy blinked and said that he could not answer as he had no instructions on that point. After the two bankers left, the three envoys deliberated again. After hours of heated discussion with Pinckney and Marshall arguing with Gary, the two Federalists finally won the day, and they all agreed to cut off the informal discussions over breakfast the next morning. Ottinger arrived at the previously agreed-upon hour, but Bellamy was an hour late, asserting that he had come from a meeting with Talleyrand, and again, pressing for the envoys to agree to the terms. When pressed, he said that while he had no official details, he felt that if they just gave the money, 
they can forget about the whole repudiating Adams' statements. And look, Bellamy even has a means for it to be accomplished. The U.S. would give France an advance of 32 million Dutch florins. Then the French would conclude a treaty with the Dutch, in which the Dutch would repay the advance to the U.S. America wouldn't be out anything in the end, so just give the money now, please. Marshall, mindful of the sums being tossed around, asked to clarify whether the douche of 50,000 pounds was in addition to the 32 million florins, or was a part of it. It was in addition, meaning that part wouldn't be paid back. The envoys huddled once more, with Gary again urging caution, and with the three finally agreeing that Marshall should return to Philadelphia to seek more instructions. They returned to tell Altinger and Bellamy, and Bellamy flew into a rage, threatening to throw the trio out of France before storming out. While waiting for expulsion orders and getting their bags packed for what seemed to be the inevitable, Marshall wrote two dispatches on behalf of the commission to the administration detailing what had occurred, as well as writing personal letters to William Vance Murray and George Washington, updating them as well. Instead of an order to leave, though, the envoys were sent a third intermediary, a wealthy planter from Saint-Domingue named Lucien Otval, who was acquainted with Gary from a stint living in Boston before moving to Paris the year prior. When Otval called on the envoys on the evening of October 22nd, he found his friend Gary as the only one at their lodgings. During the meeting, Otval stressed that he and Talleyrand both were trying to be friends to the United States, but their demands had to be met. Gary asked him to return the next day to present the demands again when Marshall and Pinckney were present. When he returned and met with the trio, Otval suggested that they pay an informal visit to Talleyrand, but Pinckney and Marshall felt that any visit not of an official capacity was inappropriate. Gary, however, had known Talleyrand during his time in America, and so could go with Otval as a friend to visit with him. The day before the planned meeting, though, Altinger returned once more with the news that France had concluded a peace treaty with Austria, and that the Directory was growing impatient to get negotiations with the U.S. going. By this point, Pinckney had had about enough, and one can understand why he, of all the envoys, would be frustrated. He had set out a year before thinking that he'd arrive and settle into the diplomatic residence without a problem. Instead, he'd been jerked around, run out of the country, forced to sit on his hands for months, and when things were finally starting to move forward again, here came these folks trying to shake them down for every cent they could get their hands on. Pinckney asserted that they were aware of the situation, but they were not authorized to pay a tribute, and that while, quote, America depreciated a war with France, our present situation was more ruinous to us than a declared war would be. America would defend itself if need be, should France force a conflict. Altinger, likewise growing exasperated, exclaimed, Gentlemen, you do not speak to the point. It is money. It is expected that you will offer money. Pinckney then told Altinger that he felt that he had made his point quite clear, to which the Frenchman said, No, you have not. What is your answer? Pinckney immediately answered, No, no, not a sixpence. This moment would eventually morph in the national lore to the phrase, Millions for defense, but not one cent for tribute. However, it was not as firm of a stance as the dramatic retelling over the years would make it seem. Indeed, Gary kept up his appointment with Talleyrand and heard straight from the horse's mouth that he was after the money. They were given a week to decide, but Marshall and Pinckney didn't need that long. They were not authorized to make a loan, nor were they authorized to pay a bribe. The answer was no, come what may. What came was Altinger with yet another offer from Talleyrand, 
Clearly, as we've discussed previously, Great Britain was experiencing issues in 1797. It was inevitable that France would triumph. And in their triumph, it's likely, quote, that the wealth and arts of that nation would find its way to the friends of France, even those across the Atlantic. If, of course, the American envoys would just pay the douchille. They didn't even have to do the loan yet. Marshall or whoever could go back to Philadelphia for more instructions on that note. Just pay the money, and Talleyrand could carry on informal negotiations with the other two envoys in the meantime. The envoys asked some follow-up questions. Would France return the cargoes of U.S. ships that they had seized, and that were still in their custody if they paid the bribe? No, replied Audinga. Would France suspend further attacks on American ships if they paid the bribe? Again, the answer was no. Thus, it was easy for Marshall to respond on behalf of his colleagues with a firm no to this new deal. As Marshall reported back to the administration about the conversation, the bribe would, quote, only give us the benefit of seeing the plays and operas of Paris for the winter. So what was the point? October 30th found the envoys at breakfast with Bellamy and Altinger again. It sounds like they both might have arrived on time this time. And Bellamy lectured the envoys, quote, for an hour about the power and glory of France before handing over a written copy of Talleyrand's latest terms. Again, if they paid the bribe, or even a good portion of it, Two of the envoys could remain in Paris, while the third went back to the U.S. for more instructions about the loan. Meanwhile, quote, a mutually agreed five-member commission would adjudicate American shipping claims against French privateers, with the U.S. paying the claims awarded, quote, as an advance to the French Republic, who will repay it in a time and manner to be agreed upon. Also, Talleyrand agreed to suspend the confiscation of American property and seizure of American ships until the envoy returned from Philadelphia with new instructions. This was a great deal, Bellamy and Ottinger protested. Why not just take it and pay the money? A day later, the envoys sent their response. The U.S. would not advance the money to pay claims, but possibly there might be room to negotiate on other issues. On one issue, though, they were firm. No bribe period, point blank. As you can see, a stalemate was settling in, and it seems, according to Marshall biographer Gene Edward Smith, that both sides were counting on time being on their side. Talleyrand felt a delay would strengthen the Democratic-Republican cause in the U.S., which would put pressure on the envoys to capitulate, while the three envoys worked to each other's strengths. From Smith, quote, In important ways, each of the envoys contributed substantially. Marshall provided balance and direction, Pinckney supplied unshakable dedication and firmness, and Gary, ever prepared to see the French point of view, restrained his colleagues from precipitously breaking off discussions, which in the last analysis placed the responsibility on Talleyrand. Talleyrand sent new intermediaries to intervene in November, including the Caron de Beaumarchais, with whom Marshall had previous business dealings, and James Mount Florence, the American vice counsel in Paris. But the envoys stood firm. No bribe, period. Meanwhile, as fall gave way to winter, the envoys continued to send reports back across the Atlantic, reports that would not reach the capital until the spring of the following year. As the year drew to a close, John Marshall wrote to U.S. Minister of Britain Rufus King about the situation and asked for his advice. It must be remembered that this was the first diplomatic mission for all three men, so it is easy to understand why they would consult with King, who had been serving in London for a year and a half. Marshall wrote to King, quote, what ought we to do? We regret the impossibility of consulting our government. We must act upon our own judgments, and our opinion is that we ought not to remain much longer. 
The diplomats planned to give it until mid-January. Then, if there was no progress, they'd pack their bags. A day prior, King had written to Marshall, having heard a report of the situation from a fellow American who had recently been in France, and asserted that, quote, On the subject of bribes and loans, I do not perceive that under any circumstances you consent to them. To ransom our country from injustice and power would be to invite dishonor and injury, because there can be no guarantee against them. They decided to give it one last shot, and in a memorial to Talleyrand, dated January 17, 1798, that was written by Marshall and signed by all three envoys, they laid out their arguments for, quote, United States neutrality and a restatement of the American claims against France. While they made no ultimatum, it was fairly obvious from the text that they were calling Talleyrand out. Either start negotiating or send us packing. Let's end the game. It's at this cliffhanger that will leave the three-man commission for now. Some of you may be wondering why I felt this diplomatic back and forth was important enough to devote an entire episode to. I mean, the Jay Treaty and Pinckney's Treaty didn't get this much attention. Well, in some ways, this exchange was even more important for a couple of reasons. First, the symbolism. You must remember that the United States is still a very young nation at this point. The envoys hadn't yet met when the United States celebrated the 21st anniversary of the Declaration of Independence, and the Constitution had only been ratified nine years prior. Both contemporaries and later students of history would look to this defiant stance against paying a bribe just to begin official negotiations as a key point in establishing American sovereignty and honor. However, in a more immediate sense, once news arrived in the U.S. of this scandal, which would be dubbed the XYZ Affair, when the names of Altinger, Bellamy, and Otval were redacted to X, Y, and Z, respectively, in the copies of the envoys' dispatches made public in the spring of 1798, this would cause a seismic shift on the political landscape of America that would impact the remainder of the Adams presidency and beyond. So as to not lose the momentum, we're going to pick the XYZ affair back up with our next episode, which I'd like to call Have at Thee, the response to XYZ. Before I go, I'd like to thank Noah again for providing the intro quote for this episode, and I hope you'll go to check out his podcast, The History of Vikings, which you can locate anywhere fine podcasts can be found. If you have any questions, comments, or tickets to the Paris Opera that you'd like to send me, you can reach out to me via email at presidencyspodcast, all one word, at gmail.com, or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash presidencies, on Twitter at presidencies89, or on Instagram at presidenciespodcast, again, all one word. Source notes for this episode can be found at presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. That about does it. Take care, dear friends. Until next time. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts.